Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns. And this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. Most of what you're going to hear in this week's episode was prepared and recorded prior to today, Wednesday, January 6, 2021. But it felt important to append a new introduction and make a few little tweaks in light of what has happened since I wrote it. As I assemble these words, Trump supporters, some of them armed, are surrounding, occupying, and ransacking the U.S. Capitol to prevent the presidential election results from being certified. Meanwhile, at a synchronist rally in Lansing, Michigan, more Trump supporters erected a giant cross in front of the state Capitol building, calling for the overturning of election results there. If passages from The Handmaid's Tale were passing through your mind, you would not be alone. In this symbolic cross-raising, white Christianity in the United States reveals itself to have been overrun and ransacked by white supremacy, co-opted, taken over, and wielded as a weapon against Jesus himself as he appears in fleshy, vulnerable human bodies. In this moment, it is crucial that those of us who claim to follow Jesus take responsibility for our symbols and articulate as clearly and open-heartedly as possible the meaning we draw from the life, ministry, and death of Jesus. That's why we aim this podcast at white Christians who, like me, want to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. We welcome all listeners, and we also acknowledge that as white Christians, we have extra work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. To the degree that we have not adequately done that, we are implicated in what is happening in Washington, D.C., in Lansing, Michigan, and at state capitals around the country today. We cannot afford to separate ourselves out as the good Christians over and against conservative or evangelical or dangerous Christians, or as good white people over and against ignorant white people. As understandable as that move may be in a moment like this, this binary thinking in itself reinforces the logic of white supremacy, the desire to divide the world into good and evil, and to wage war on evil in ways that end up suppressing, maiming, and killing God's life over and over again. We have to do better. As I write this, so much is still unclear. You will know more by the time you listen, I'm sure. But a few things seem certain. Joe Biden will be confirmed as the president-elect, and the people who orchestrated this will not go away just because someone else is in the White House. So the question feels urgent. How do we respond to the crisis that has been unveiled not just today, but over the past four years? I don't have the answer to that most pressing question. I think if any of us did, we'd be in a very different place right now. The way forward will emerge over time and out of communal discernment. So we offer this podcast, as we do every week, as one humble contribution to that communal process.
But first, I want to say that for many of us, the sight of burly white men running roughshod over whatever they want, seemingly with few consequences, has triggered a trauma response. Many of us know this experience in our own bodies. And if we don't personally, our ancestors surely do. So if you are listing toward fight, flight, freeze, or appease responses, you are not alone. Please take care of yourself. Do whatever you need to calm your nervous system. Herbal tea, maybe a hot bath, a visit to a nearby place of beauty, whatever works for you. Your body, your mind, your nervous system are precious and deserving of care. The second thing I want to be sure to say is that I believe God works from the inside out, transforming us, and then, or rather simultaneously, sending us out into the world to act as yeast, to leaven the loaf and transform the world by who we are and how we move. Our goal is not, first and foremost, to change other people, nor is it to win or triumph over them. Our goal is to be changed ourselves so that our light burns brighter and our leavening power increases. Salt, light, yeast. We are charged to be alchemical agents that transform the environment in which we are embedded. And we are each uniquely gifted, fearfully and wonderfully made, said the psalmist, to do the work that is particular to each of us, We are not all called to the same tasks, so what I say here is by way of suggestion for you to pray on and discern over. Take what speaks to you and leave the rest. So for now, we hold the tension of seemingly opposite realities. Violence is unfolding in the federal capital, while here in Oakland, the most delicious rain is falling, bringing out the red in the redwood bark and greening the landscape, even as I type. The work of being alive, it seems to me, is the work of holding these seemingly conflicting realities, the horror and the beauty. Somehow, I feel like holding the tension between the beauty and the horror is the necessary precursor to transformation. So, tonight, I may go again with my germ pod, across the bay to San Rafael, a North Bay suburb, where thousands and thousands of starlings have suddenly taken up residence and are every night astounding onlookers with swooping, swirling, kaleidoscopic murmurations that exceed any fireworks show I have ever seen. In a tiny cemetery wedged between the freeway and a shopping mall, the birds have claimed their little slice of wilderness, And they're doing their thing in the wilderness outside the Bay Area, in their little slice of wilderness. The wilderness is where we find Jesus this week, on this first Sunday after the Christmas tide.
The scripture for this week is Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. As the story goes, the wild-looking John the Baptist is out in the wilderness baptizing Judeans in the River Jordan. And somewhere in the throng is a man from Nazareth of Galilee, which is kind of like saying a guy from Gnawbone, Indiana, or Paris, Ohio, or McMullen, Alabama. He's just a guy from basically far away from anywhere that is considered important. A guy that is from a kind of rowdy place, but where the people don't have much systemic power and so get written off. But then John dunks him into this storied river, and as he comes up, he sees the heavens torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. He sees it, this guy, whose name apparently is Jesus, but it's not clear that anybody else sees it. It's kind of like nothing special happens from the outside, but clearly something did happen because a version of this story is told in three of the four gospel versions of the, and alluded to even in the fourth. There's apparently something important here. Reading this story this year, the year of the Starlings, I couldn't help but remember Claire's episode of this podcast during this past Advent, the one about Isaiah's request that God tear open the heavens and come down, just do it already, and then Anne's episode about her longing for God to do just that, come on and write the injustice already. Both of those were part of our series called Abolition Advent. So it seems like this event that seems like kind of nothing is actually the quiet fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, out of earshot of anyone important and invisible to everyone except Jesus, and maybe, but maybe not, this strange revolutionary named John. Also, reading this this year, I couldn't help but think of the starlings quietly tearing open the heavens in a nothing little suburb in a graveyard between the freeway and an ordinary shopping mall in front of a crowd of maybe 50 people each night. I know it probably sounds like I'm going on a bit about a bunch of birds, but if you could see it, it's really hard to imagine that the sudden appearance of this murmuration, murmuration, such a word, right at the turn of the year, this hellhole of a year, right along with the appearance of the Christmas star, the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, it's really hard to experience it and not imagine that the starlings are trying to tell us something, that maybe God is trying to tell us something. We talk a lot about community safety at Surge and here on this podcast, and the starlings are an interesting model for that. These birds are totally clear that their safety is in their community. The murmurations are a dramatic unarmed community defense strategy. 
See, peregrine falcons and red-tailed hawks are always looking to pick off a bird who strays too far from the flock. But in a murmuration, individual birds are constantly shifting into and out of the inside of the flock, making it almost impossible for predators to identify and target a victim. In community security trainings that we've hosted as part of our Alternatives to Policing campaign, we've learned how to absorb someone into a crowd when they are being targeted by police or white supremacist counter-protesters. A murmuration. The choreography of murmuration works because each bird tracks the movements of the seven birds immediately around it and then adapts to them. As Adrienne Marie Brown says in Emergent Strategy, this requires right relationship, a right distance between them, too close and they crash, too far away and they can't feel the micro-adaptations of the other bodies. Each creature is shifting direction, speed, and proximity based on the information of the other creature's bodies. Imagine our movements cultivating this type of trust and depth with one another, having strategic flocking in our playbooks. I find myself wondering what it would take for us to be attuned to each other in this way. It is so deep in my self-understanding to think of myself as an individual, first and foremost, and an individual who has a right to do whatever I want whenever I want to. It rarely occurs to me to check in with the group before making my moves. That belief in individual freedom runs so deep in our national consciousness. And until this year, until COVID, and until I started watching The Starlings, I've never really thought about how vulnerable my individualism, my insistence on going my own way, makes me and everyone around me. Privilege protects me, to some degree. I am a dangerous bird to pick on, a white woman who is likely to be believed, unless her aggressor is a white man, which he usually is, in which case, well, you know. Suddenly, it seems to me that our insistence on individualism, the vulnerability that entails, is much of the reason we even need police. We have substituted cops for community safety, militarized police for murmuration. And the ideology of individualism serves the larger strategy by big capitalists to keep us divided from each other. It also strikes me that the starlings are so acutely attuned to each other's bodies when they are murmurating, and I think about how unaware I am often of even having a body. I am unaccustomed to noticing it, much less responding to its signals. I've said before that I think this separation from our bodies serves a purpose in upholding a violently unjust status quo. So many of us learn to dissociate early on, leaving our bodies because it is just too painful to endure what is happening to them or what we see happening to other bodies all the time all around us. I think it's Mab Segrist in her book Born to Belonging who talks about how white women on plantations used opium to tolerate their husband's brutality toward enslaved people or developed sick, sick headaches and took to their bedrooms to avoid having to witness it. 
Neurologists have discovered mirror neurons that actually are designed to help us attune to each other like the starlings and attend to communal well-being, to murmurate. And it seems to me that we've gone to such great lengths to shut them down, numbing ourselves with substances and frivolous entertainments and compulsive work in service of capitalism, all in the vain hope of transcending the need for community by amassing enough to fortress ourselves in gated communities. We've learned to separate ourselves. So that's a question I have for you this week. How do you separate yourself out from community? Maybe your strategies are different, but for me, it looks like an interminable to-do list and a constant sense that I should be working harder usually in ways that involve sitting by myself at a computer typing things. My brain tells me I don't have time to call people or write in my journal or join that prayer Zoom or arrange socially distanced walks with friends or even join the car caravan to pressure landlords to lower rents, that instead I need to work. Sugar is another strategy. I notice that when I binge on leftover Christmas cookies... Oh, let's admit it, there are no leftover Christmas cookies, but there is a convenience store around the corner. Anyway, when I eat a lot of sugar, or even flour, I feel sort of pleasantly distant, glazed over, protected. But this protection is really no protection at all. It separates me out from the only real protection we have, which is community. Community safety for all. You might be thinking to yourself, yes, but what does any of this have to do with Jesus and his baptism? (laughs) Good question. This year, I am drawn to thinking about Jesus' baptism as a fleshy, embodied experience. The cold of the water, the mud and muck under his feet, the sense of other bodies all around undergoing the same experience, and then the dunking that moment of submersion in an entirely different world, and then rocketing back up into the air now alive with bird flight and the sense of everything being different. As I worked with this passage this week, I remembered that in his great opus on the Gospel of Mark called Binding the Strong Man, Ched Myers makes a very big deal out of a preposition translation in this passage. Apparently, in verse 5, the Greek says that people were being baptized by John in the River Jordan. But in verse 9, Jesus was baptized by John into the Jordan. For Myers, this suggests not just a dip in the river, but full submersion, going all in. In that moment, Jesus becomes a part of a historic alternative community that crossed this very river years ago. Remember our hashtag Journeys to Freedom series. Jesus' baptism is a liberating act, a reenactment of that final step in crossing from imperial slavery to freedom in the promised land. 
Myers writes that for Jesus in this moment, all the debts that have been incurred under an elitist Roman ordering of power and its community life have been canceled. Jesus has become wholly unobliged. He has become outlaw in ways that permit him to be fully in solidarity with a people who are at risk and under the thumb of oppression. Jesus has been baptized into God's alternative community. Reverend Lenise Pinkard takes a similar tack in a 2008 sermon on the baptism. She suggests that in the Jordan, with all its muck and mud and human waste, Jesus loses any remaining privileges that might still have adhered to him as the Son of God, getting down and dirty with the people. And he does this voluntarily. So strong was God's longing in Jesus to be with us in every aspect of our lives. Baptism for Jesus was a way to fully identify with humanity. As if coming to earth in a human body weren't enough, Jesus undergoes baptism as a way of coming even closer to us. This is, as Pinkard says, a God of love without privileges. This is God with us, truly, in every sense, even though it entails incredible risk and will end in murder by the state. This drawing near has huge implications for how we are with each other and with all life. Bio Okomalafe writes, If the sacred were far away, we will abuse the nearby. God coming not as a pristine figure in a distant and other place, but a dripping nobody rising out of a muddy river as part of a communal experience. This image should divest us once and for all of our fascination with purity, with separation, with transcendence, with being one of the good ones, unsullied by this world, this fascination that keeps us separate from one another. If I look honestly at those moments when I'm most likely, for example, to call the police, those moments are when I just don't want to engage, whether with the kids playing their music at full volume on, at midnight on the street, or with the couple having a screaming fight on the corner, or with the ragged person staggering out into traffic in front of my church. I just don't want to get involved. There's a way that I want to remain separate. I want to believe that they're not my problem, that my life is not inextricably bound up with theirs, tied, as King says, in a single garment of destiny. I want to believe that somehow I can avoid getting my hands dirty, but it is only privilege that gives me any shot at that possibility. And privilege, if we are following Jesus, is what we are called to give up. In baptism, Lenise Pinkard writes, Jesus entered into the gestational process of birthing his own humanity. Jesus becomes human by entering and re-entering the messiness of life. She suggests we are called to do the same with and for each other.
In this baptismal scene, the heavens are torn open. There's something about that opening in the sky, a crack, a possibility for the advent of something new. Reality is not as resolute or as stable as it appears, says Bayo Okomalafe. Suddenly there is possibility everywhere. God has entered the world, and nothing will ever be the same. And we are fully a part of that. Jesus hears a voice saying, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. No one else hears it. It's not for public consumption. But this nobody from Nazareth hears it and believes it. And that makes all the difference. What would happen, I wonder, if we took that message for ourselves? Can we imagine that Jesus here is a stand-in for every human being, every single one of us beloved and well-pleasing to God? What kind of surrender, what kind of boldness, what kind of risk-taking might that inspire in us? How might our status as beloved help us enter more deeply into community? How might it help us navigate the tension between deep solidarity and the need for sustainability and rest? Might it help us stand firm in our own boundaries and insistence on care, even as we insist that every other part of God's life receive the same care? Might it connect us with the awe and wonder that is our birthright as people who are alive in this glorious and terrifying world? I had a 12-step sponsor who told me once about her practice of viewing everything beautiful as a personal gift to her from her higher power. Like, wow, God, a yellow rose bush you shouldn't have. The sight of a pale pink VW bug two lanes over on the freeway, it's just what I wanted and didn't even know it. That's sort of how I feel about those starlings 20 minutes from here doing their nightly dance, tearing open the heavens so that God can descend on those gathered to see them. For me, God? Really? It's too much. And it's not about purity, that's for sure. Starlings are classified by many as a nuisance species. Their murmurations pose a threat to air travel, and they cause an estimated $800 million in damages to large agricultural operations and feedlots. And yet, I can't help but compare them to the vultures, whose excrement is rendering border patrol communications impossible. Or the eagles, have you heard? Who are attacking and bringing down military drones. The revenge of the giant birds. What if part of what the starlings teach us, and what Jesus experiences deep in the Jordan River, is that there is no purity, but there is solidarity even with God's life in forms that we find unfamiliar or inconvenient or threatening? Is it possible to hold all of it, the beauty and the horror, the belovedness and the risk? And if we do, how will it expand our hearts and our capacity for full aliveness? I guess I don't have a lot of answers this week, mostly just questions. Maybe 2021 is a time for living the questions, as poet Rainer Maria Rilke puts it. Maybe it's a time of wilderness, 
slices of autonomous zone carved out of this urbanized imperial land. Maybe it's a time for awe and wonder and possibility, the heavens torn open, a nobody from nowhere coming with strange saving power, all of creation announcing God's love to anyone who is willing to hear. Let's sit with these questions, friends. Plant them in our bodies and see what grows from them there. I'm grateful to be living them with you. Amen. If Jesus' baptism is about entering fully into solidarity with vulnerable people, then that is the call to action for this week. What is one small step you can take out of individualism and into community? One possible step is to share your stimulus money, which should be arriving by mail or in your account over the coming weeks. While welcome, of course, this stimulus payment does nothing to target relief toward those with the most need. Arguably, this is intentional. Perhaps the real purpose of the stimulus is to encourage those of us who are not in desperate straits to spend more on consumer goods and thus stimulate our capitalist economy. But we don't have to comply with that intention. If you're able, consider sharing your stimulus. There are no doubt local organizations doing good work in your area. I'll link to a national list in the transcript. Or you can even start your own fundraiser and collect stimulus money from your friends and redistribute it to people in need in your own area. My friend Carol Robison and I have so far collected nearly $17,000 in the Bay Area and will give it to people who are currently unhoused or at risk of losing their homes. This is community safety. I would also encourage you, if you haven't already, to check out our Community Safety for All toolkit and to spend some time talking with folks in your faith community or organization about how you can learn to move as a murmuration, taking care of each other and your communities without relying on policing. Finally, I should mention that this Sunday marks the 63rd anniversary of the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference the civil rights organization founded by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and others as protests spread after a successful integration of the buses in Montgomery. The SCLC was a community safety mechanism, and maybe it will provide inspiration for our own resistance to white Christian nationalism. This would be a great week to learn more about that organization. That's what I've got for you this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from my comrade, Reverend Jean Jeffress. I know they'll bring something powerful. Together, we are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding 
And here it is being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude for you. That's it now for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. <laughs>